You know, it's the cross when we really take the full understanding of what that meant and what Jesus accomplished. It leads us to lay everything down for him. You know, on this Sunday, we gather with believers around the world to pray for the persecuted church. Do you know that since Jesus first came to the earth, there have been 43 million people, believers in Christ, that have paid the ultimate price and died as martyrs for Christ. They would not forsake him or the faith. It is estimated at this present time in the world, there are 200 million people, believers in Christ, facing persecution. That means potential job loss, being separated from families, uh, mothers being taken away from their children. Some, some are being tortured. Others are dying. 60% of persecuted Christians in the world, it's estimated, are children. And so on this Sunday, we want to especially just remember them in prayer and to use this as a springboard for praying throughout the year. So if you want to be seated, let's just go before the Lord now in prayer. And I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 3. So would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So would you right now just praise God that he is the creator of all? That he is the one who has made every single person. Would you praise him that God has seen it fit to make every person made in his image? Worthy of respect, dignity, care, compassion. Would you praise God that he is holy and that he is good? Would you praise him that he is just, that he establishes right and wrong? And he is the one who will absolutely maintain all justice and uphold it in the universe. He knows the thoughts and the actions of every person. And for the times that you and I have not walked in holiness, for the times that we have sinned, as the Spirit of God brings these issues to your heart and mind, would you turn from them, confess them as sin, and experience the cleansing that comes from being unloved unconditionally in Christ. So do that now. And would you thank the Lord that when Jesus said, it is finished, to telestai, that's true for you. You are forgiven. You are free if your faith is really in him. <laughs> what a glorious gospel. And as we pray for the persecuted church, let us do so like this prayer in Ephesians 3 says, asking that God would grant each individual 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Would you ask God right now to strengthen those who are facing persecution for their faith? For those who face uncertainty, job loss, those who've been separated from their families. Pray for the fellow believers in Christ that are incarcerated and in prison camps in Asia. Pray for those who are being tortured. And would you ask God to strengthen them with power, that they be overwhelmed by his shepherding care and love, Would you ask God to give the persecuted wisdom on how to share the gospel? Ask the Lord that they would not lose hope. The Spirit of God would encourage them and protect them to give them power and peace. And would you ask the Lord that the glorious gospel of Christ would go forth and even in the midst of suffering and through suffering, that Christ may be shown and shared as more valuable than life itself, and that there would be a widespread turning, people who are lost in darkness and sin, to experience the light and the love and the forgiveness of Christ. And so, Lord, we gather this morning, and we worship you. You are worthy of all of our worship. We worship you with our songs, our hearts, our giving. And we gather especially this morning to pray in earnest, God, that you would accomplish your sovereign and good and glorious purposes in the lives of your people, us and fellow believers, especially those who are being persecuted because of you. For we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No God like Jehovah, the God who would show us our desperate need for salvation, and then he would provide it in the sacrifice of his own son. Let us sing, there is no God like Jehovah, the Lord is my salvation.
our salvation. No matter what we may face, our victory is found in Christ, the one who has risen from the grave. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is for us to gather together to sing your praises. The Lord is our salvation. He's our hope, our forgiveness, our life. He's the reason that we persevere, for he has given us even his Holy Spirit so that we would know the sweetness of fellowship with the living God. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we're asking that once again, through the working of your Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would bring about a depth of love, overwhelmingly so, for Christ through the preaching of your word. And for those who are yet to truly know him, would this morning be their day of salvation. So we pray expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Really good to see all of you here this morning. And for all of you who are joining us online, uh, you got the extra hour of sleep and you look good, right? Yes, you're awake. Everything's going to be great. Um, If you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you with us this morning. We are going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, One of the things we do at Fellowship is we take a book of the Bible, and we actually walk all the way through that. Uh, So God brings about transformation through his revelation. We're in Mark chapter 15 this morning. So glad that you're with us this morning. Years ago, my very first job at a college, um, I was working... uh, we had a client came in that I had never met before. He was going to be meeting with my manager, Chris, and uh, he comes in, and uh, I don't know how he did this, but somehow he turned the conversation with Chris uh, to what he actually believed about Jesus, specifically how he believed that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And, you know, Chris wasn't a Christian. She was investigating Christianity. I had been talking with her quite a bit about the gospel, And uh, he was pretty adamant in his beliefs. I could kind of overhear their conversation. And so she brings me into the conversation. Now, at this point, I'm a relatively new believer. I've been reading my Bible, and I most certainly are clear that Jesus actually does die on the cross. But this guy is really emphatic that he didn't. So not wanting to create a scene or actually embarrass this fellow, I said, hey, can we meet in the conference room back here? Uh, So... He was willing to do that. He was quite a bit older than I. I went to the back room. I got my Bible, meet him in this conference room. He informs me that he has a lot of Bibles that are really marked up. And he's he's just kind of amping this up. This is raw intimidation. He told me he's a Sunday school teacher. You know, like, okay, Uh, good to know. Uh, So I don't exactly remember all that we covered, but I did try to show him from the Bible that Jesus actually died on the cross. But, you know, really for about 200 years, uh, there has been this surge uh, really among liberal scholars and liberal Christians teaching that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross, but rather what took place is that it looked like he was dying, but he comes off the cross and he is revived in the tomb and is able to kind of walk out. And and that's why the tomb is empty. And liberal scholars, and they get started with guys like Karl Barth and Karl Venturini, they absolutely didn't want to believe that Jesus Christ is truly man and fully God. 
You can't have a resurrection. So they tried to explain it away. And one of the things they tried to do is explain the fact that he actually didn't die on a cross. There wasn't this idea of atonement and Jesus being the propitiation, satisfied God's just wrath. We can't have that. I mean, we certainly can't have him rising from the dead three days later because otherwise he's God. And we don't want to believe that. And so they concocted what is called the swoon theory, that Jesus kind of came back. He was resuscitated, okay? And it was fortuitous. He didn't die. Now, uh, this actually, this idea, it's popped up for the last 200 years. It shows up in literature every once in a while. You've got some quote-unquote scholar or professor that wants to write about things like this. Did you know that Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross? Uh, it's written in the Quran that, uh, Quran was written about 7th century, that Jesus only appeared to have died on the cross. It, was, it, it looked like it was, and there's varying beliefs among Muslims. Some actually think that actually it was Judas who was actually dying on the cross, but the Jews actually thought it was Jesus. Some uh, believe that Jesus was given some, like, this liquid that he was drinking from, and it actually kind of put his body in a state that it made it look like he died. So you've got Muslims that actually think that he didn't actually die on the cross, some teach that actually Jesus uh, went forth all throughout Arabia, and for 40 years after this supposed event that he looked like he died on the cross, that he actually preached Islam in Arabia. There are the Ahmadiyya Muslims who contend that Jesus actually fled to India. And uh, in fact, you can see this, here it is. This is the supposedly a burial place for Jesus. It's found in Srinagar, Kashmir, okay? And you can actually see the Quran being quoted where it says that it, it appeared as if Jesus died. So there is like, like this urban myth, and it actually continues to flourish with the idea that Jesus didn't die. But what does the evidence really show? Is there any possible way that Jesus didn't die at the crucifixion? What actually happened? I want you to open up your Bibles and take a look at Mark chapter 15, because how do we know that Jesus really died on the cross? The first thing I'd like to point out to you are the effects of his flogging and his crucifixion. And this is kind of by way of review, because we've been going through Mark chapter 15. But you'll notice in Mark 15, verse 15, at the trial of Jesus, there had been this kind of like kangaroo court among the Jews, they condemn him for claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And then you've got the Romans, and they have three different phases to their trial. They can find him of doing of no wrong. They declare that he is innocent. And yet the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, are working the crowd up into a lather, calling for his crucifixion. And to kill him, Pilate washes his hands and says, I don't find anything wrong with him. His blood be upon you and your children. And they're like, that'd be fine with us. Verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging um, by the Romans, absolutely brutal. They'd shred your back. They could take you to about an inch of your life. Uh, they'd use a whip, it had a wooden handle, it had metal balls and metal pieces and sometimes glass, and they would just shred an individual. And they were really good at it. Some people didn't actually even make it through a scourging. 
they would scourge generally before a crucifixion. Um, this was all meant to inflict maximum pain. And then notice, though, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. You see that also there. Um, what, that's exactly what they did in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And crucifixion, the Bible doesn't go through a lot of detail. It's not evoking sympathy out of people. It's causing you to think of the significance of the cross. But crucifixion was to take nails about the size of like a railroad spike, sharpened at the end, driven through one's wrists and their feet, nailing them to a cross. It was absolutely unbearable. The pain was and anguish was so great, they had to invent a word to describe it because they didn't have one. Have you ever used or heard the word excruciating? You ever heard that? You know where it comes from? It comes from the crucifixion. It literally means out of the cross, the most intense pain. And Jesus endures this and he dies. One of the reasons why we know that Jesus died on the cross is you just look at the effects of his scourging and the cross. Let me show you another reason. Look at the eyewitness account of the centurion. Look at verse 39. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, the centurions, that means that they oversaw 100 soldiers. They were really the backbone of the Roman army. You weren't appointed a centurion. You rose the ranks. You were good at being a soldier. And a centurion that oversaw crucifixions actually had a specific title, the exactor mortis. They specialized in the art of execution, especially execution on a cross. And so this particular centurion would oversee the scourging of Jesus, and he would oversee Jesus being nailed to a cross. He'd be there for every event. It was his job to make sure that he not only experienced the, the, those being crucified, experienced maximum pain, but that they would eventually die. And it was this man, it says, notice where he's positioned. He is standing in front, right in front of him. You see, they would guard to make sure that no one would try to offer any aid unless they were allowed. No one would try to maybe try to take them off the cross. And this man heard it all. He had seen a lot of people die. He had been the one that oversaw these details, but never anyone quite like Jesus. Jesus, with such strength, though he's being hurled all this abuse, yet he's praying. And he kept making this specific prayer. In fact, the Greek says they said it over and over again, the tense. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Who prays like that? Certainly he had heard that Pilate found nothing wrong with him. Certainly these claims that he's the son of God, he's the Messiah. And then remember that there are two prisoners that are also being executed, one on either side. And one of those robbers eventually turns and places his faith in Jesus and asks him, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? Today you will be with me in paradise this centurion watches and witnesses this and sees this. But then when Jesus breathed 
his last. Do you know what preceded that? Three hours of total darkness. Remember how we talked about that last week? The sky completely goes black. This isn't a solar eclipse. This didn't last for a few minutes. They literally are trying to figure out this has never happened. Three hours, total blackness, because God is pouring out his just wrath upon his son who will pay the penalty, the full penalty of sin. No earthly eye could see the anguish that takes place. For three hours, he's like, what, what is going on? And he's standing in front of Jesus. And when the sun comes back, he hears Jesus utter, to tell us die. It is finished. And Jesus doesn't die with a whimper. He doesn't just fade away. He yields his life. He breathes his last. And this centurion had seen a lot of folks die, but never one like Jesus. How do we know that Jesus really did die on the cross? Well, look at the eyewitness account of the centurion. Notice also the experience of the leading women disciples. Pick it up in verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So here we have this group of women who had come down from Galilee. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 that there was a group of women that ministered to the apostles and to Jesus. They were securing food, finding perhaps lodging. They were providing from their own finances the resources needed for this kind of ministry as they're traveling, going from city to city and place to place. Jesus isn't just always miraculously just making food and a place to live. They actually are being provided for, and the Bible specifically notes these women. The leader of them, because she's always mentioned first, is Mary Magdalene. Uh, she is Mary from Magdala. That is up in Galilee, northwest, kind of by Capernaum. Mary Magdalene is never noted as being tied to a husband or her children, as we see some of the other Marys. And Mary, by the way, comes from the Hebrew Miriam. There are at least six women in the New Testament named Mary. But she is the leader. Luke tells us that Jesus had cast out seven demons out of this woman. Her life had been horrific misery before she knew Jesus. And Jesus, his great compassion and great power, tremendous love, frees this woman. And what happens when you've been freed and you really know Jesus and his love for you? You serve him. It's a joy and delight. You associate with him. And that's what Mary did. And so you have Mary Magdalene watching this. But also, you have Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. So you have this other Mary, and she has these two sons. Mary is the mother of James, the less, or he's James, the son of Alphaeus. He is one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And then you have Joseph, and he is perhaps uh, pretty well known among Christians, and so he's named. And then you have this woman, Salome. She is the wife of Zebedee, who happens to be the mother of James and John, who are also one of Jesus' 12. These are women that, when this was written, they were alive, 
And you could go and check with them because they also are eyewitnesses. They, are, they experience and see this. And notice it says, verse 40, they are looking on from a distance. We know that, uh, that earlier on they were close to the cross. Now, all of the apostles except one had fled. The one that remained was John. Do you remember that Jesus, while on the cross, actually tells John to take care of my mother? How powerful is that? But we don't know why they have to move away from a distance. Perhaps it is so horrific and they can't take it much anymore. Maybe the soldiers are like, you're too close. We don't know, but they are observing and they watch all of this and they see him and that he is dead. There are only two groups that ever ministered to Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 13, you know the one group that ministers to Jesus? The angels. You remember after the temptation uh, by Satan? God sends his angels and they minister. They serve Jesus. The other group that serves Jesus? These women. Talk about courage, power, strength, fortitude. Others may abandon. Their loyalty brings them to the foot of the cross and they watch and they see it all. They're trying to make sense of it. And I want you to know, the church of Jesus Christ has so much owed to these women who served behind the scenes, faced horrific difficulties, would not abandon Jesus even in his final breath. And we know from the experiences of these leading women disciples, we can know for certain that Jesus died on the cross. But let me give you another piece that we see here. And that's beginning in verse 42, the examination by Pilate. Look at verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So the evening would be from like 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And the preparation day is always Friday because Sabbath begins at about 6 p.m. on Friday and it goes through Saturday. And so we know for certain that Jesus actually dies on Friday, right? And it's the preparation day. So the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew. It's based on the Hebrew word meaning to stop. They would stop. Uh, they wouldn't do any work. Uh, they would have double, make double food, double amounts of firewood that was needed. Uh, they would put double amount of feed for the animals. They were going to cease working. And they would use this as a time to come together as a family. They would have a special meal. They would celebrate God's provision and his protection during the Sabbath. And they begin with this meal on this Friday night. The day before is called the day of preparation. And they took it really serious because the day of Sabbath was a day you simply didn't work. There was a lot of Jewish law that you find written in the Hebrew Scriptures that told them what this was to look like and how serious God took it. It was even one of the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that it speaks of is that the Jews were not to have a body hung, likely hung on a tree, on the Sabbath. And so the Jews... On this Sabbath, they wanted to make sure that these criminals, including Jesus, were off that cross 
and buried. They wanted them done away with. That was in keeping of their law. They didn't want in any way their Passover, especially uh, their, the Sabbath, and especially on the Passover, in any way to be marred. And so they make a request to Pilate to have these criminals taken down, killed and removed. And so how they would do it, and John records these details. John records in verse 31 that the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, asked Pilate if the legs of these criminals, including Jesus, could be broken so that the Passover and the Sabbath especially would not be defiled. Well, you're like, well, why would they break the legs? Because it's by using their legs, they would force themselves up with their raw back up against that cross to take one more breath. Absolutely excruciating and painful. But if your legs were broken, you're going to die probably within a couple of minutes. And so they had made that request. And so the soldiers did. They came to one, you can read about this in John 19, verse 34. They saw one, they broke his legs. The other criminal, they broke his legs. But they came to Jesus, it was clear he was already dead. They could recognize death. They specialized it. But one of the soldiers takes his spear and he lances his side and he jams it in through Jesus' body. And John records in John 19, 34, that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. John, untrained in medical science, you you wouldn't expect blood and water. Blood, but blood and water? And yet the serious pleural and the par- uh, pericardial fluid would come out. That would, that would be like, look like water. And then you'd have this blood. And it was just a clear indicator that Jesus was dead. Now, these may seem like just an insignificant decision on this, soldier, on this one soldier by actually putting a spear through Jesus or not breaking his legs but I want you to know who's in control. God is. He exactly fulfills messianic prophecy. He most certainly doesn't know any of it. And even if he did, which would be highly unlikely, he would care less. And yet it says in Psalm 34 verse 20 that about the Messiah, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Because who is Jesus? He is the Passover lamb. So at the very moment that at the temple they're sacrificing the Passover lambs and a Passover lamb had to be unblemished, no broken bones, that's not going to work, Jesus dies and is sacrificed. Does he have any broken bones? He does not. And furthermore, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, there is a prophecy about the Messiah that he is going to be pierced through, that we will, one day, you will see him who was pierced. And that's exactly what happens. You see that all of these events are guided by the invisible hand of the Almighty God. And so it's on this preparation day, this day before the Sabbath, verse 43, that Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, now, this, I, I, you need to understand what's taking place here. This is like shocking. 
Joseph of Arimathea, he's about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He is one of the Sanhedrin, one of the council. Remember the ruling body of Jews that condemned Jesus to death and turned him over to the Romans? He is a part of that body, part of the ruling Jews, and yet Luke 23 tells us that he had not consented with the religious leaders. Likely, he wasn't there. Notice the text says, he is waiting for the kingdom of God. He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He most certainly had heard about Jesus. Because he's one of the ruling body, they had listened to his messages and his teachings. Where almost all of the Sanhedrin were against him, like this guy's going to totally uh, wreck everything for us if people believe in him and the Messiah. This Joseph of Marathia, he believes. His faith is solidly with Jesus. He is trusting in him. So much so that he is willing to put it all on the line to go and to retrieve the dead body of Jesus. In a sense, he's burying himself economically, socially, with his family. His high esteem position among the Jews, guess what? That all goes away the moment he walks in and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, whom the Jewish leadership absolutely hated. And I want you to know, this is high risk. Now, what the Jews, what the Romans did when they executed, uh, they would sometimes, after a guy died, sometimes they'd leave them up there on the cross for several days. They would do so um, they, to be eaten by like predatory animals, just for decay to start stepping, setting in. And at some point, and this was all done by effect, the Romans did this, this was calculated to instill absolute fear. But when they were done, they would take whatever's left of that body and they'd throw it like in a garbage dump or some sort of common grave for criminals. That's where Jesus would be assigned to. And now you could, as a family member, you could make a request, but it only could be granted by someone who was absolutely in charge, like in this case, a governor. And they, they may, and there's, there's apparently um, stories of this where they actually would give you what was ever left of this body. But in the case of someone who was an insurrectionist leading a rebellion, you didn't get the body. In fact, to associate with an insurrectionist could be dangerous. It could lead to your death. So you've got to imagine the surprise of Pilate. Somehow, Joseph Arathia, we know from the scriptures that he's a wealthy man, he must have prestige and status because he is able to actually secure an audience with Pilate after hours. I mean, what a day it's been. And when Pilate hears that one of the Sanhedrin, this Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps even knew him, is here and he's got a request, he must have been shocked when Pontius Pilate hears that he wants the body of Jesus, the very one that the ruling body of the Jews condemned and called for his crucifixion. It would have been preposterous. you got to be kidding me. And I want you to know that Joseph has got it all on the line. This is high risk. So once Pilate, like, what? You want the body. You know that for insurrectionists. And what was the, what was the crime put over Jesus' head? Does anybody remember? To be what? The king of the Jews, right? This Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. You want his body? 
Are you really sure about that? Do you know what you're doing and what this is going to cost you? Once Pilate came to terms with that, verse 45, you know, he's wondering, I mean, is Jesus already dead? And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. I want you to know the Romans had nothing to gain about lying about the death of Jesus. Pilate, I want you to know, his career is on the line. You don't kill Jesus, the Jewish leaders are going to beeline to Rome and you're going to be done. His, his position was already tenuous at best. They're going to say, right, we had an insurrectionist, and Pilate let him go. Faked some sort of crucifixion, pulled him down, and Pilate did this, and he stirred up all the people in revolt against Rome. But I want you to know, that even though Pilate had his career on the line, you know who really had it on the line? The centurion. His life is on the line. His job is to make sure the criminals die. They die on a cross, as torturous as possible. And furthermore, he not only has to make sure that he's dead, this centurion always has to speak the truth. If he lies, he's going to face consequences. But if Jesus isn't dead and he says that he's dead, if a prisoner would escape, let me just tell you how, Rome, how it worked in the Roman army. If your prisoner escaped on your watch, you die in their place. In fact, we have an example of this in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 19. You have Herod Agrippa I. Remember when Peter, uh, just miraculously, God releases him out of prison? And you remember when Herod couldn't find Peter? Do you know what it says? Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Those Roman soldiers, he gathered them and they were executed. Why? That's how it works so most certainly the centurion would make sure that he's dead. And that's exactly what takes place. Verse 45, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to, Ju- to Joseph. This is the Romans officially pronouncing that Jesus is dead. And do you see Joseph? Joseph is meant to be an example of what it means to really understand the death of Christ Something takes place in Joseph. He steps out of the shadows. Before, he'd just kind of like, not say anything, but, but he believes, believes in Jesus. No more. There's something about the death of Jesus that when you see it, it takes you out of the shadows and you walk forward with courage and strength. And that's what we see here. And you're asking, did Jesus really die on the cross? Do you see what's written here? It has been affirmed by the Romans. You know, there was a thorough analysis conducted by the Journal of the American Medical Association done in March of 1986. And they took all the details regarding Jesus, his loss of sleep, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion. And this is what they determined and they published. They concluded that Jesus was probably dead even prior to the spear being thrust into his side and that any swoon hypothesis is entirely irreconcilable with contemporary medical science. There's a book uh, written by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. I would highly recommend it to you. It's it's fascinating how they just kind of walk through. Lee Strobel, at the time, he's tracing his steps as as an investigative journalist and a non-believer, an agnostic, of actually interviewing all these different people. 
One of the interviews he has is with Dr. Alexander Metherell. He's a distinguished medical authority, written numerous articles and books, and he interviews him. And in this interview, Lee Strobel asks this, quote, is there any possible way, any possible way that Jesus could have survived that? Absolutely not, says Dr. Metherell. Jesus was already in hypervolemic shock from the massive blood loss even before the crucifixion started. He couldn't possibly have faked his death because you can't fake the inability to breathe for long. Besides, the spear thrust into his heart would have settled the issue once and for all. And the Romans weren't about to risk their own death by allowing him to walk away alive. So Lee Strobel asks, when someone suggests to you that Jesus merely swooned on the cross, Dr. Metherell said, I tell you them, it is impossible. It is a fanciful theory without any possible basis in fact. How do we know that Jesus died, really died on the cross? Well, look at the examination by Pilate. And let, me, let me show you this. Notice the evidence of his burial. Look at verse 46. Now, Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out, from, out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So, Joseph of Arimathea, he's wealthy, he's going to have servants, he's not just doing this all by himself, these servants would help him. Uh, we also find that there is another individual that is involved in this, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. They would take Jesus' body on the front, down from the cross. Now, maybe the Romans did this. Uh, rigor mortis is instantly going to start setting in. And if, you're, if a body has been through a lot of excruciation or a lot of physical activity, it moves even faster. And so the body of Jesus is taken down. And notice it, they state that he is wrapped in this white linen, in this linen cloth. You see, the Jews did not embalm corpses. What they did is they would wrap them tightly with this white linen wrap or like a shroud, and they would do so and put all these spices, aloes and myrrh, it make this like sticky substance, and they would wrap the body as a way of trying to somehow uh, work against all the putrid smell that comes from a decomposing body. And so that's what they did, and that's what we see here. But Joseph of Marathea is not alone. There is another member of the council, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. You see him in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes at night and actually talks with Jesus. And it's a fascinating conversation. We find in John chapter 7 that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And he also steps out of the shadows as one who is a believer in Jesus. But he does so in his death. And it says in John chapter 19, verse 39 and 40, it says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And these linen wrappings were white because they were very similar, at least to give the appearance of what the Levitical priests wore in the temple. And so they would wrap this body, and notice, a hundred pounds, okay? Not a hundred ounces, a hundred pounds. Totally wrapped up body. 
and they put it in a tomb. Matthew tells us that this was Joseph's very own tomb. Luke and John tell us that this tomb had never been used before. This was a family tomb. And so they take the body of Jesus, wrapped in a hundred pounds of aloe, myrrh, and all of this linen wrappings, and they lay it in this tomb. And then, just as the text says, they rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, I want you to know that this wasn't just like a sudden, quick, impulse decision, like, oh, we better step in and do something here. No. They had to prepare. Were you, I mean, all this wrapping, all the aloe, all the myrrhs, they had, they had prepared for some time for this. And furthermore, they had to do it under the radar of the council, which they were, at least at that point, still a part of. And so they do. And they, they take Jesus and they bury him. And that tomb is sealed. And this happens on Friday. Now, these men didn't fully realize all that was taking place. You see, um, there is a lot of prophecy. In fact, by one account, there are about 330 prophecies regarding the Messiah given in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. There was one that was just completely puzzling. It's found in Isaiah chapter 53. It could make no sense, and I'll read it to you. Because it wasn't until this event takes place in those few hours on that right as Friday is ending, on that day of preparation, this takes place. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What? That doesn't make any sense. What is that even possibly speaking of? Until it happened. Where was the assigned grave? You take that body and you're going to throw it in the garbage up or or in a common grave for criminals. But Joseph of Arimathea is used by God. You see the providence of God and he takes that body and he and Nicodemus, they bury Jesus. And when do they do it? On Friday. For the Jews, they would count a part of the day as a whole day. And Jesus has said in three days he will rise again. Jesus needed to be dead and in the grave for how many days? Three. And unbeknownst to these men, God is fulfilling his providential scripture. And Jesus is buried in a tomb on a Friday. I'll tell you what, that is absolutely fascinating. Jesus is most certainly dead. Look at the burial. But then one other point I'll point to you. Look at verse 47. Look at the evaluation of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. These two women, given by name, they're still there. And they watch all of this transpire. They see him actually laid in a tomb. They know exactly what tomb. They see this large cylinder stone. It would kind of come down a hill. It would take at least several men to even move it. It'd be massive. They did this so that uh, there wouldn't be grave robbers or animals wouldn't get in there. And they're watching and they're trying to make sense of all this. But you know, at the exact same time while this is taking place, Matthew records this, that the Jewish leadership they also make an appearance to Pilate and they said, you know what? This imposter Jesus, he made these like statements like he's coming back, like back from the dead in three days. And so Pilate gives them a guard, some Roman guards, and the Roman seal. So there would be a cord that would put against that cylinder stone that covers the grave and they would put this wax Roman seal on there. 
And if you broke that seal, you were going to face the wrath of the Roman Empire. That's how it worked. And so it is absolutely secure. And they're like, we don't want any sort of idea like the disciples going to come and steal away the body and say, look, Jesus rose. Let's make sure that doesn't happen so we don't have more drama than we've already got. Jesus is absolutely dead. So why does it matter that Jesus died on the cross? If I could, let me just give you in just succinct, concise statements why this matters. Why does it matter that Jesus died on the cross? For Christ's humanity to be confirmed. You know, the first major attack to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus came from the Gnostics, like you can read about it like in the book of Colossians. These are those who believed there had to be some hidden mystery knowledge in order for you to be saved. Do you know what they attacked? Not that Jesus was God. They were fine that Jesus could be some form of God. That's fine. A deity? You know what they, did not ha- they could not handle? That Jesus was a man. And this proved that he was. Why does it matter that Jesus died on the cross? For Christ's humanity to be confirmed? For prophecy to be fulfilled? For God's love to be demonstrated? For God's justice to be satisfied? For salvation to be supplied? And for eternal life to be secured? You see, Christ's death on the cross is where our life with God begins. So remember the guy who kind of comes in the office and he's going to put on a show and kind of tell everybody like, oh no, Jesus just kind of, he didn't die on the cross, he kind of resuscitated. It was fortuitous. Is that possible? Absolutely not. But just hypothetically, okay, I believe this is an impossibility, but let's say Jesus, he didn't die on the cross and the swoon theory was correct. Do you really think that someone who had been scourged and, and crucified on a cross, would be able to get around, walk around, go on a long journey to a road on to Emmaus, do you think he'd be able to use his arms after his shoulders had been dislocated? Do you think he'd be able to function well, having been scourged or a spear run through his chest and through his heart? Seriously, do you really think that would be the case? Do you think that the disciples would like, whoa, Jesus, you're still alive and we're going to try to nurse you to health? would run around proclaiming that Jesus is alive from the dead and we're going to have a body like his. Absolutely not. And do you think these disciples, if they thought this this was a hoax and they knew it to be the case, would face persecution and they themselves would face death for what they knew not to be true? Absolutely not. Friends, if you're going to be a Christian, you must absolutely believe in the death of Jesus, that he bore the penalty of sin and that he was resurrected from the grave, not resuscitated. You see, Christ's death on the cross is where our life with God begins. Let's pray. Lord.